the difference in risk is about the same as the difference in, you know, whether you decide to drive to your local shops or shopping mall over there, you have shopping malls, whether you decide to decide to the shopping mall on a sunny day, or if it's just raining a little bit. I'm not talking about a thunderstorm. I'm talking about a little bit of rain. So we know that statistically, you're a bit more likely to have a car accident if it's raining than if it's sunny. Um, But it doesn't stop people going to the shopping mall. And I know that that might seem like a trite example compared to, you know, talking about babies. But actually, the reality is that it's because it is so emotionally charged that, that it's so easy to persuade women and families to say yes to these interventions, where actually the absolute risk is low. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. My name's Sarah Wickham. I've been a midwife here in the UK for about 30 years now. Um, I'm actually now a retired midwife in terms of hands-on practice, um, which is, to be honest, more about the fact that I can't practice in the UK in a way that I feel is safest and best, um, not because I don't want to. But I've also, in that time, been an educator, speaker, researcher and author. And in the last few years, that's what I focused on the most. And and right now, I'm pretty much a full-time author. Um, so people may or may not know me from some of my books. Um, I think the most well-known is In Your Own Time, How Western Medicine Controls the Start of Labour and Why It Needs to Stop. I think that's the, the subtitle. Um, but I also have written um, Anti-D Explained, and Anti-D is Rogam, you call that Rogam in the US, um, Group B Strep Explained, Vitamin K in the Newborn, and What's Right for Me which is about making decisions. So I, I I basically these days, I write books which combine the two sides of me. And there is there is the side of me that has been a home birth midwife and I have, you know, a, a home birth midwife's heart and 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 that that's been my practice background. But I also have a background in maths and science and statistics and and I love maths and statistics and evidence. I have a PhD in evidence-based practice. And I actually love explaining maths and statistics, (laughs) you'd think I could say it by now, to people who don't like maths and statistics. Because what actually these days in the culture that we live and work in and birth in, what we really need is for women and families to be able to understand the evidence in different areas so that they can make the decisions that are right for them. And so these days, that's really what I do. I write books that help explain the evidence so that people can make the decisions that are right for them. Well, we are both quite familiar with your work and we really value everything that you have to say. And we reference your work a lot and we know our community also um values very much what you have to say. So it is an honor for us to have you here today. And 
We are very much looking forward to talking about a topic that not very many people really talk about or understand, but it is extremely important. And that is the, you're going to better explain it than me, but I'm going to call it the risk of risk and the risk of focusing on prophylaxis and prevention in maternity care, which is basically how it's done in clinical practice and where everybody always talks about how important it is to follow evidence-based medicine, but there is, there is another piece to this. Um, and that is learning to make your own decision and not getting completely caught up in looking at um, risk analysis. So can you explain it better? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and what I would say just to pick up on what you said about evidence, Trisha, is that evidence-based medicine is not always what is being practiced in maternity systems around the world, in the US, the UK, and many other countries. And, and and when people read my book, sometimes they say, wow, so the evidence says this, and why are we doing this? And I mean, that's, that's not what we're going to talk about today. That's another podcast. But I think that's a really important point to make is that actually, we are not necessarily the maternity care that is on offer in the systems of care today is not necessarily evidence-based. It's also not always very kind. Um, it's not trauma-informed. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's not based on, on what women and families want. Um, so, but we, but I know we're going to talk about risk and there has been, I mean, in our culture, there has been this growing emphasis on risk, on health and safety. I mean, Cynthia, I know you've, you've taught childbirth education for a long time and, and and I don't know if your experience is like mine, but you talk to parents and and talk about what what they do, what you know the areas they work in, and 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 if I ask groups, how has the emphasis on risk and health and safety changed in your work over the last two decades? Almost everybody I talk to, no matter what their profession or occupation, will say will groan and say yes. We now have more rules. There is a growing emphasis on risk. There's no doubt about that. The one thing that I that I am very grateful for is that I'm in a position to observe trends. The risks just keep expanding, and the traditional midwives keep getting more medicalized, and the rhetoric keeps growing. Mm. And we and we just this cultural focus on risk. We just we just can't seem to get away from it, and and that pervades maternity care just just like every other area of life. And so some of the work I've done throughout my books and, and work is to, to say to people, well, let's unpack the notion of risk and let's look at what it's actually about. Now, mathematically, risk is simply a word that we use to describe the chance of something going in a direction that we don't want it to, you know, of something unexpected or untoward happening and I, mean, I don't know about you but to me it seems like that's also the kind of the definition of life it's it's really hard to like live a life where everything goes you know as you as you want it to and 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 risk is very linked with the notion of uncertainty and we can exactly. we can come back to this if you like but I think that one of the reasons that risk is seen as something that really needs to be managed in some settings and by some professionals and providers and 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 others where others are calmer about it is actually to some degree related to how much people feel the need to try and control 
what's going on around them. Um, so, but, but risk in itself is risky. And we, we have this emphasis on risk. And in maternity care, there is, and I'm sure you see this too, there's this conf- constant emphasis on assessing for risk on saying, well, you have this characteristic. So you are, you're over 40, you have a higher BMI. We, you know, we perceive your baby is too small or too big. And, 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 you know, to, to bring that in for a moment, which you talked about, Cynthia, we then have to ask, well, how are we measuring and how accurate? And again, that's another kind of whole tangent I won't go down. Um, but we have all of these risk factors that we pick up and then want to jump in and, and act on. And You're right. Clinicians love to check the boxes of risk factor and then put you in a certain category. You're not safe for home birth. You need to go to maternal fetal medicine. You out, you risk out of the birth center. All of these things just based on a list of, of items or criteria that, you know, somebody meets age is a perfect example. I mean, you could be far healthier at 42 years old than some people at 30 years old mm. and and they are these are crude factors they you know as you say they are they are kind of really simple crude factors risk factors are used as a proxy for health but they're not they don't reflect health i mean i've most recently i mean my my next book which is coming out this month is um is called plus size pregnancy and um, what the evidence really says about higher BMI and birth. And that's a really good example where BMI is used as, or, you know, body mass index is used as a really crude measurement to say, well, you need to go down this path and you need to go down this path simply as a result of the number. And it's not evidence-based. It's really problematic. It doesn't reflect health. And so my you know kind of the, the the topic that we were we were you know we're going to talk about is the risks of risk itself this whole idea about using risk to categorize to put women into risk categories and then to offer prophylactic interventions tests to restrict their options to say actually you can't you can't use this midwifery practice you can't use water because you're too big you, you you may not go to the birth centre. You can't have a midwife because your baby's breech, you know. But using risk, this whole notion of risk itself is risky. There are a number of kind of ways in which using risk is risky. Hey there, all you amazing, strong and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. 
So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Coming from a background in finance, because I'm, I'm a former finance professor and that my first introduction to risk was all statistics. And I've always thought about risk because in the field of finance, the layperson says with respect to the stock market, the greater the risk, the greater the return, which it, it isn't true in my opinion. It's like the greater the risk, the greater the potential return, but the greater the, the potential loss. So you you can convince any any new investor. Well, if you don't take risk, you're not going to make the big money. That's not at all how it works. It's about it's about potential variability in outcomes. And it's interesting because as you're talking about this, I, I'm just thinking about risk, right? Because there's the rhetoric around the risk of home birthing. And when I was thinking about that, the potential reward of home birthing is through the roof. When you do get the desired outcome, it is an impossibly satisfying life-altering event. But there are risks in the hospital and there is variability in the hospital. And I feel like the greatest extreme of the variability is a traumatic birth. And of course, you can have the most satisfying births in a hospital and the most traumatic at home. But I do think it's interesting how we throw around this word risk and how we assume it implies safety, like the antithesis of risk is supposed to imply safety. 
but really it's linked to that possible variability in outcomes. Absolutely. What's the range of outcomes you can have if this is the risk you're taking on? And, and mathematically, the word, the word risk simply means chance. I actually say to people, we should use the word chance rather than risk because it takes all that kind of heat out of the word and the scariness. Um, but it just means the chance of something happening. Right, right. Possible outcomes. Well, let's hear your list. So we know you've given this a lot of thought and uh, it's really exciting because I don't think we've talked about anything like this before. What have you come up with as far as this approach toward risk and what risk really means? Or like what happens when we pursue birth through this framework of controlling supposed risks? Well, so obstetric research is really very narrow and it focuses when it when it, when we do research things and actually a lot of the things that we do, we don't actually have good evidence by even by obstetric standards. We don't have good evidence. A lot of things, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of things that are happening aren't evidence based. And in fact, they're just based on tradition. And sometimes the conclusion of the evidence is does not align with the actual data in the study. And that's very clearly evidenced by the ARRIVE trial. So not only do we not have the evidence, but we can't even trust it all. And and one of the things that I do a lot of, you probably know in my books and when I'm teaching, is to unpack that evidence. I'm never taking studies like the ARRIVE trial at face value. What, What I do in my work is to say, well, let's have a look at this, because just because something has been published in a medical journal doesn't mean it's actually good, doesn't mean it's any good. It might be very limited. I've written thousands of words on questioning the arrived trial, so it's actually really hard to know where to start. But I mean, one one of the problems is that some of the ways that we want to set up research trials, um, you know, randomised controlled trials are really set up to evaluate drugs. And when we're trying to evaluate interventions and practices, it is very difficult because if you are trying to evaluate, say, a a drug that's designed to reduce somebody's blood pressure, you can make another drug that looks like it. So you've got a placebo and then neither the woman nor the care provider knows who's getting the drug and who's getting the placebo. But when it's an intervention and or it's, you know, it's really hard. Um, you, you, You can't double. Ideally, you have a trial that is double blind. So neither the woman nor the care provider knows which group she's in. But but in these sorts of trials, and unfortunately, it, we just have to accept that that is how it is because it's it's too hard. You know if you're having a vaginal birth or a cesarean section for your breech baby, it's really hard to, to blind for that. So the the problems, you, you were asking for my my list of, of the, the risks of risk. And res, obstetric research just measures the short-term outcomes. And as we've just said, it it often does it in a partial, really problematic way that we could unpack all all afternoon. But whatever it's doing, it's generally measuring just the short-term outcomes. So is there a live baby in the cot at the end of the shift? That is obstetrics measure of success. Um, And so we... Medium and long term effects are very, very rarely measured in these studies. And one of the risks of of using this risk focused approach is that actually the actual side effects of these interventions. So we're talking about things like giving antibiotics for group B strep and and 
we do that differently in the UK from you. So you offer antibiotics to any woman who is carrying group B strep. And my understanding is that all women are offered a group B strep test in pregnancy. And I'm saying offered because that's what I think should happen. I acknowledge that's not what happens in reality. In the UK, we use risk-based screening. So it depends on the risk factors um, in the woman's history as to whether or not she's offered antibiotics. But either way, an awful lot of women are having antibiotics, intravenous antibiotics in labour in the hope of preventing group B strep. And But we have the, the actual side, there are side effects to interventions. And, you know, the the effects of side effects of pitocin and prostaglandins and other drugs and mechanical interventions used in induction. So we have the side effects that occur at the time. And those are not always measured or not measured well in obstetric research, even when they they exist in the short term. Um, they're, they're not always being measured. But we also then, as I mentioned, we have the medium and long term effects, which are almost never measured, not in the sorts of research, the, the research studies that actually are used to change practice or to tell women, oh, well, you know, you are twice as likely to have this as that. Um, they're, they're not looking at the, the medium and long term effects and also the wider effects. So to go back to the example of, of, of antibiotics and group B strep, for instance, antibiotic resistance, because we are giving around a third of labouring women antibiotics because of a tiny chance. I mean, in the UK, it's one in 17,000 babies who who die from group B strep disease. And, and that's absolutely dreadful. I don't want to play that. I don't downplay that. I don't I don't want to gloss over the how how awful that is um but we also have to think about the wider picture and the effects that the overuse of having antibiotics we you know the other 16999 women and babies who received antibiotics in labor in order to save the one baby and 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 i you know it what what a difficult decision to make you know and i'm not saying these things are easy um but we also have to think about the effects that the overuse of antibiotics is having down the line and how many babies are dying or will die in the future um, as the result of antibiotic resistance or because one day antibiotics just will no longer work. Um, Sarah, can I clarify what you just said? Mm. That was so valuable. I want to make sure everyone understood. In the UK, you have a risk-based approach. So that's not to say that no women receive antibiotics. It means if they have a risk factor, such as... Oh, plenty if, of women receive antibiotics. It's just that the decisions as to who is offered antibiotics right. are made on the basis of if you have a risk factor rather than you are positive. So some women are still screened, culture-based screening. Yep. Some women still have screening. Um and the one in 17,000 is in that population you have in the UK, where some receive it only based on risk and a majority don't receive the antibiotics. In fact, are not even screened in pregnancy because they don't have risk factors. Is that where the one in 17,000 showed up? That actually and, comes from a study that's 20 years old because we don't have. Good yeah, enough. We Often we're using old data. It actually predates. It was in a time where fewer do we know the data in the US where 17,000 women who were screened and did, they're not doing that work, are they? So that's kind of your point. You're saying, is it really necessarily worth giving 
uh, blanketly giving 17,000 women antibiotics because they tested positive at some point in pregnancy, usually later in pregnancy. Is that really worth it? But right. But who's even to say, did it save that one child? Because it's not always effective getting the antibiotics. And then even if it did, you're saying who's to look at the lifelong effect of this and how that showed up later for those 17,000 children who received antibiotics as their first intervention. And just to add to that, it's also to say that the only risk that's being focused on is the risk is the, is the risk of not getting the antibiotics. So this is not a true informed consent. We're focusing on one side of the risk. We're not, nobody's, nobody's mentioning all the other risk, as you just said, that comes with the potential of antibiotic resistance over time or in, a, a, an allergic reaction potentially to the well, antibiotics. And the impact on the baby's microbiome. Yes. You know, we, we you know, we are depriving, we we are learning so much in recent years about the importance of the microbiome or the the, the healthy bacteria that that you know, live on and within our bodies. And we now know from studies how important that is for babies. And yet by giving all of these women antibiotics in labor, they the antibiotics are not simply targeting group B strep. Um, that you know that they that there is an impact on the microbiome, and but this is not being considered. We are, as you say, you were, you're absolutely right. We are focusing on the one thing, which is mortality. And 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 I mean to go back to answer your question, Cynthia. I I don't want to be I, I don't want to be in a position where I'm saying what should happen across the board because I have. I have a huge amount of sympathy for those who make these policy decisions. You're just saying we haven't looked at the alternative. We haven't even studied the alternative is what you're saying. What I'm also saying is that women and families need the information on all of these things. And they need to know where we do have evidence and what the numbers are in the studies. And they need to know, well, what are the problems with the studies? Was that a good study? What are the questions? They need to know these are the wider issues. These are the questions that haven't been looked at because they are not considered to be a priority within obstetric research. Because the other thing is that I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's one answer for this because everyone has to make the decision that is right for them right. within their own context. And yeah. We all have different values and different family situations and backgrounds and living situations. And 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 my focus is all on saying, look, this is the evidence. This is the information so that people can make the decision that's right for them. And, and then and then the last I'm determined to get to the bottom of my list. I hope that's all right. And then we can expand the last of the risks I want to throw in there is this is the one that people think about less often because it's the impact that this whole focus on risk has on women's confidence to be constantly told that you are at risk, you know, that your body's broken. It has the implication that your body's broken. It's not working well. You know, it's, it's, you know, it, it, yeah, we're not really sure you can do it by yourself. You need to come to the hospital, let this expert in a suit or a white coat, you know, come in and gallop in on their white horse and save you. And that's, it's really harmful to women's confidence at the point where Women are becoming parents or anybody's becoming parents. They need to be, you know, feeling super confident. And actually what we're doing in the system and, and with this whole emphasis on risk is we are undermining that. And it's it's really disingenuous because actually we know from the evidence that most women would be really fine without all of this monitoring intervention, you know, risk status. And, and actually 
quite a lot would be better off because they would avoid all of the risks that I've just listed. Just one other point when we were discussing um, stillbirth that we didn't talk about with risk is the difference between absolute risk and relative risk, because it's so easy to convince somebody that something is very dangerous when you say that you have two or three times the risk if you don't do this, or you, you know, if you decline the induction, your baby has a two or three times risk of dying. When you say that to a woman, you know, she's just going to accept the induction. Yeah. And but it's, absolute risk, if you get down to the numbers and you look at absolute risk, she may have a very different opinion. Absolutely. And it's really scary, you know, to be told, oh, your your baby is twice as likely to die, four times as likely, you know, you you have a higher BMI, so you are four times more likely to have this problem. And one of the things that I've done in the in the new book, in fact, I've done in several books, is to where I can get the data from the studies. And actually, it's really interesting because the researchers, they don't often make it easy for you to find out the absolute risk. You, I have to go in and do sums. And sometimes this is, this is where my maths background comes in. Sometimes I can't do the sums because they don't give you the raw data. And sometimes I, I feel like going back to what you were saying, Cynthia, about, you know, whether there is bias in here. Sometimes I wonder, if they're not giving the raw data because they don't want people like me to come along and say, well, let's look at the absolute risk here. Um, but but yes, indeed, it's, you know, we we have a situation where the, the risk might be, you might be twice as likely, but if we're talking about the risk, the chance of something happening, shifting from one in a million to one in 500,000, you know, it, it's actually, you're still extraordinarily unlikely to have the problem. You are far more likely to be fine, but we don't present it that way. We don't say, well, actually, there is a 99.96% chance that your baby is going to be alive and well, and in 20 years, you'll be moaning about the cost of university. Imagine if that was the headline. You know, you're 43 weeks and you still have a 99.9% chance that your baby is going to be absolutely fine versus the headline that says, go past 42 weeks and your baby's twice as likely to die. Yeah. That's how it's presented to people. And 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 one 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 example that I like to share, which you're very welcome to 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 share if you're listening and you you teach childbirth education or anything like that, is that often the difference in risk um is about the same as the difference in, you know, whether you decide to drive to your local shops or shopping mall over there, you have shopping malls, um, whether you decide to decide to the shopping mall on a sunny day, or if it's just raining a little bit, I'm not talking about a thunderstorm, I'm talking about a little bit of rain. So we know that statistically, you're a bit more likely to have a car accident if it's raining than if it's sunny. Um, but it doesn't stop people going to the shopping mall. And I know that that might seem like a trite example compared to, you know, talking about babies. But actually, the reality is that it's because it is so emotionally charged that that it's so easy to persuade women and families to say yes to these interventions where actually the absolute risk is low. And here's the problem that I see. It was, it's, it's a little bit in line with what you were saying as your final point about how it affects women emotionally, but here's, here's what happens in the thought process. Women along with their providers often conclude, you know what, let's just not take any chances. Let's just induce. Yeah. Let's just not take any chances. Let's just do a C-section now. Let's mm -hmm. not take any chances. Just do the GBS antibiotics. 
somehow we've been persuaded to believe that taking action is going to increase the likelihood of a safe outcome. And, and psychologists have written about this. It's called action bias. And, and, I, and I've talked about this in, in one of my books, which is called What's Right For Me. And I mean, here in, in the UK, we play football. You call it soccer. And, and we, we know from studies that when goalkeepers are facing penalties, you know, they, they can either stand still or they can dive to one side or the other. And researchers looked at data to see, well, what is the best thing to do? What is what should you do if you want to have the highest chance of saving a goal? And the answer is to stand still. If you analyze lots of penalties, like hundreds and thousands of penalties, goalkeepers are more likely to save the ball if they stand still, but you never see them standing still. And that's because of action bias, because nobody wants to be the first to stand still. And and this is a really important thing. And this happens in maternity care as well. People do not get kind of told off or mocked or ostracized or prosecuted for doing something. They, 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 all those things happen where people don't do something. But if you take action, whatever it is, whether that's diving to save a penalty or doing cesarean, recommending induction, you can say, well, I did everything I could. And we live in this culture where there is this massive focus on doing. In the U.S., obstetricians are actually told and taught that they will never be sued for the cesarean that they perform. Yeah. They will only be sued for the cesarean they don't perform. Yeah. Yeah. They, they might be sued. They're more likely to have an adverse outcome, but they're not going to lose in court because their defense is, I had a concern. They can provide all the rhetoric leading up to their action. I had a concern. I didn't like what I saw. Baby was in danger. And I did a C-section. Right. And that action bias is an interesting term. The same is true in the financial markets. You know, if you mm. if you buy stocks or mutual funds and hold them for decades, it invariably you know, index funds do better than the professionally managed funds where people are thinking and taking action because they're being paid to take action. They yeah. start taking too many actions and they're getting lower, lower returns than in, in, in a stock market index fund. What about that impact emotionally though? Because I I'm so used to seeing that when women finish my class or any, I think any really great childbirth class experience, they're like, they're feeling so good. They're feeling so trusting. They're feeling so close to their partners and so connected to the baby and so ready to give birth. And so often those women have called me two, three months later as they're approaching their due dates and they fear that they've somehow erased all the good work they did because their providers are really messing with them psychologically. Mm. We never seem to take that into account. That's monumental. It, and it affects the outcome of the birth, irrespective of the decisions, whether she does induce, even if she, de- even if she declines induction after the recommendation of her provider, that will keep her awake at night, wondering if she did it because of her ego or because she's being reckless. And that's all, that's all it takes. So then she brings that into her birth, that fear, that stress. Mm. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the um, the very first chapter I wrote when I when I wrote In Your Own Time, which was actually the second book I wrote about induction, because I'd written about what happens. I'd written a book called Inducing Labour, Making Informed Decisions. And that was all about what is the process? What are the pros and cons for different indications? And and yet I'd done all this work and saying and, and I was like, we need a book that looks at the bigger picture. 
And the very first chapter I wrote in that book was called The Advantages of Spontaneous Labour, because we are always being told about the risks of waiting and the benefits of induction, but we're not hearing, well, what are the advantages of spontaneous labour? And there are enough that I filled a whole chapter on them. And and I think that that emphasis is really important, as you say, because this is what you've given is a really good example of the emotional impact of risk um, on, you know, on, on how people feel. And and of course, the irony is the huge irony is that in late pregnancy, that worrying and anxiety kind of inhibits you from feeling relaxed and letting all the hormones flow that are going to, you know, start labour. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. And you're entering the process already in a fear-based, somewhat fear-based mindset because you just have, now you just have this creeping doubt that you questioned the professional. You questioned the person that you're supposed to trust, Yeah, but your intuition is speaking to you and telling you differently. And so now you're in this, um, uh, you know, split mindset, cognitive dissonance, yeah. and that's difficult. Yeah. And, it, and and that's that's again that that is exactly the kind of the point I'm trying to make is that there there is this huge emotional impact of the focus on risk, but it's not getting talked about enough. So, Sarah, we would love to have you answer a couple of questions that our community wrote in, and because induction is such a growing issue in the birth culture, I think the number one question that every woman really wants to know is what should she do if she reaches 40 weeks and she hasn't gone into labor? What, what, what is the problem with going past 40 weeks in um, 
pregnancy. Specifically, this woman was asking about a second pregnancy. Okay, well, I mean, my my answer would be that that actually many, if not most women, will go near or past 40 weeks if we don't intervene. And just to remind everyone that that term is a range. It's not we we've become really focused as a culture on this due date. Um, but actually, only five percent of women will go into labour on their due date. Um, and so we've become over focused. It's it's a range. And and yes, there is a slight increase in stillbirth rates at the end of the period that we call term. But we've already addressed how, you know, the, it's really important to look at the absolute data on that and not just go, oh, you know, look at the, the relative risk, because. The thing is, and and this is there's um, there's actually a load of information on this on my website because I'm and obviously going to have to give you a short answer. I've got a whole information hub about induction. Um, and can I shall I give the address of that? It's it's sarahwickham.com and there's no H on Sarah. sarahwickham.com slash induction. And I've got about twenty five blog posts on there and there's links to the books as well. But when it comes to um it it actually it, with when it comes to induction for so-called post dates or post term the increase in stillbirth it comes later than people think when you look at the data the increase is lower than people think there is still again we covered this earlier but i'm going to say it again because i think it's important there is still a really 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 high chance that your baby is going to be alive and well and happy and there's going to be no problem at all and also what's also really important is that the evidence on whether or not induction actually makes a difference isn't clear cut for all the reasons that we've talked about in the podcast so my answer is to what would i recommend i would say go and have a look at the evidence go and go and look at the evidence and 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 look at that within your context and how you feel you know and take your own intuition how you feel about your pregnancy are you confident about your dates have your dates been changed to dates that you're not comfortable with what happens in your family you, you know there's all sorts of things it's so important to become informed and look at the wider issues and then make the decision that's right for you one other question that we received and we see uh, through our community, we see this happening so often is that women are being uh, women are being encouraged to be induced because they're told that they have preeclampsia and they may be told they have preeclampsia because they have an elevated high blood pressure. So this question says, what is your opinion on induction for suspected preeclampsia with no symptoms other than protein in the urine or maybe just an elevated high blood pressure? Okay, well, I don't know what you do in the US and I don't know what ACOG says, but what I can tell you is that in the UK, um, PCR, which is um, protein creatinine ratio, that is the diagnostic standard for preeclampsia. And, and what that measures is, is protein in the urine. So it's not just saying we did a little dipstick test and you have protein in the urine. It's an, it's an actual measurement that is used. And in our NICE guidelines, which are the, the national standard for, for health and, and, and social care in, in the UK, um, it says that the cutoff point that is generally used is 30. Um, so over here in the UK, that would be the cutoff point. And I, there, there's always a little bit of flexibility given the, the individual picture. And, and to be honest, that's something that you'd want to discuss with an obstetrician because, you know, that, that's their expertise. 
But generally, my understanding in the UK, and I'm not currently a husband and midwife, is that if you have a PCR of over 30, you would usually be offered induction within the next 48 hours. Um, but the NICE guideline does say that if proteinuria, if proteinuria is the only symptom, then, you know, further consideration, discussion of the situation isn't unreasonable. And I mean, I think I, I, I don't want to be boring, but my answer in all of these situations is is to suggest that to women, ask your care provider questions about the evidence base for the recommendation. Um, and 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 see what they can come up with in terms of evidence, and then make sure that you've got adequate information about the pros and cons but before you decide. And and to ask what the alternatives are, or to ask what happens if I do nothing. What if I just absolutely wait? Yes. yes. What happens? Yeah, yeah. That's the and, question we really want to know. Yeah, and and something that I also I also say to women in relation to induction generally is, if a care provider was desperately worried about your about you or your baby they would not be recommending induction induction can sometimes take three days I mean perhaps less so if it's the second baby but induction can often take a long time and so if a care provider was deeply concerned about you or your baby they would be offering an immediate cesarean section not an induction so you know I'm not downplaying preeclampsia either but it it's about getting gathering information that's a piece of advice we we often give women is that you know when you when there is an a, a really truly dangerous situation in pregnancy and especially in labor you know when that c-section is being offered just sort of half-heartedly suggesting we should be thinking about the c-section now like y- you have time you don't have to accept that you will absolutely know with certainty when it is really problematic yeah. Well, think of all the times that women are told on a Thursday, you, you, you know, you, we've got to induce you how's Tuesday. Cause my calendar is booked between now and yeah. then. And the woman's like, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. I thought you were just telling me how much danger my baby mm-hmm. is facing. And then it's all about fitting it into their calendar. And that happens a lot. We hear a lot about that. So that's when their gut instinct tells them maybe something isn't really urgent right now. And when your provider knows it is, they will make sure, you know, they'll get your attention. Yes, exactly. So one final question from our community. Um, do you have any tips or suggestions on how to write a complaint to a hospital about a bad birth experience? Okay. Um, I think that, that I'm sure there are lots of tips out there and I'm, ju- I'm just going to cover one area, which is the area that I'm kind of focused on, which is about understanding the culture of birth. Some of, some of my books are rooted in the idea that we, we, if we can just understand better about what's going on and why things happen as they do in the hospital and the system and in the minds of obstetrically focused practitioners, we can that I think it truly helps us to understand that. So I think that if you are wanting to to write a complaint, one of the first things to consider, and this might this might not be what you want to hear, is bear in mind what the hospital considers the standard of care to be. We kind of touched on this actually before, because if you are saying, you know, the I was I, I I was told I need a cesarean. I don't think I need a cesarean. Actually, the hospital is is may well think that you did, and and it may be quite hard to persuade them of that. Um, I think it's really key to understand a bit about where the hospital is coming from. And I'm not saying that we should not write complaints or defend it, but you can then word your complaint 
geared to the audience that you are complaining to and and understanding where they come from I think can help to to focus in on that complaint and and also I often say to women go in knowing what you want to achieve often you know women and families who want to complain feel very emotional and 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 I absolutely you know absolutely understand that we we all do um, it can sometimes be helpful to remember that the people who are going to read your letter probably didn't get their jobs by being very focused on people's feelings. That's not how you get high level jobs. It's not here. I don't know whether it is there, but I I suspect it's not. Um, and so I think it's probably important to think about that. Think about who is going to get that letter, you know, focus on the facts and think about what it is that you want to achieve. We are so close to women and we do birth story processing sessions with women and maybe 10% of the time the conversation does evolve into like, you know, this, this notion. And usually when women write a draft and share it with us, you have to imagine it landing on the least sensitive ears from the provider's perspective where they're just going to be like, oh, please, here's just an emotional woman complaining that this was a lot for her to handle. And really, they know, especially here in the U.S., they know they have the legal obligation to provide informed consent. So she does need to focus on, you know, never mind the first do no harm they're all supposed to be following. But was informed consent really not provided? Because it is their legal obligation to provide that. And I think that's where they have to go. They have to talk where, you know, those those the, the legal team and the administrators are going to talk. I once contacted the president of a hospital locally because the mother refused an IV and the doctor said um, that she was eight centimeters and doing beautifully when she arrived, calm, beautiful. And the provider brutally pressured her into not an IV, a HEPLA. And the woman said no in her gentle way, rather than saying, I do not consent. And the doctor said, listen, I'm telling you, if you don't put this in you right now, you're going to have to leave and give birth somewhere else. Mm. So she acquiesced, understandably, under all that pressure, and she had her baby shortly after, and she called and uh, she and her husband told me what happened. And I, she said she would write a letter to the hospital at some point, but I asked her permission to call the hospital anyway and, um, and let on that I knew exactly what happened and I knew what doctor did this. And they said, yes. I called the hospital president. And left a message, of course, on his assistant's voicemail, because that was the closest I could get to him. It's a very, very well-known hospital. And I said, oh, hi, this, this is who I am. And this is my job. And we have a mutual client who just gave birth there. And this is what happened. Uh, you and I both know that's unlawful. So I would just like to know if you support and condone what the doctor said, because this is very useful information for me to know about your facility, or if you don't support that. And I left a message along those lines the next day. This is a true story. It's not going to sound true, but it is a true story. <laughs> the next day, one day later, the woman and her husband and baby were alone in their hospital room. That same doctor arrived in elegant clothing. She wasn't working. She was in high heels and elegant clothing and brought an elegantly dressed teenage daughter into the room with her. And the doctor went over to the woman and went down on her knees took the woman's hands and said, I am so sorry for what I said to you yesterday about that haplock. I was totally out of line. I just hope you'll forgive me. I never should have said that to you. We never would have really kicked you out. And she literally begged 
her forgiveness, presumably because that President Caldron said, you get yourself in there right now and fix this because a third party knows about it and you presented a legal liability to us. So she was begging forgiveness, not because she felt she emotionally wounded and stressed that mom, mm-hmm. because she presented a legal liability and someone outside of that relationship knew about it already. Yeah. I mean, it's dreadful because what I want to say is what I actually want to do is gather up the women who have these problems and put them in a group and sit and knit and hug and and, and actually address what the very real aspect of their experience, which is, you know, almost wholly emotional and social and all the stuff that we talked about. But, you know, the, the reality is that we are dealing with systems of care which are based on entirely different principles. And, you know, and and so my answer to that is if you want to write an effective letter that may do something to change things, we we need to be writing it in ways that might actually get heard and and addressed on that level. I wish I could give a different answer to that. Yeah, we need to speak their language, mm. which is liability. Mm. Sarah, what's your what's your advice? I mean, all of we never have quite the research we want. Um, it's complicated. Research in itself is so complicated because it's often they're hiding data, as you pointed out. They're manipulating conclusions. They're converting the conclusions into rhetoric, and they're running with it. Um, their 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 numbers are too low. They're not randomized. They're not double blind. <laughs> and yet, it's all we've got. And everything is complicated. And most women aren't able or willing to do the research to the extent that that you're doing it. What, what's your advice overall in this complex system that we're all in? I'm sort of hoping that the work that I'm doing in, in, in writing books, creating information is, is, is bridging that, Um, you know, as you say, I mean, there's too much research for everybody to go and do that the whole time. I mean, I, I realized a few years ago um, that my midwifery colleagues, you know, that they don't have the time. It is very complex. Um, looking at looking at the evidence and because it's often the case that you need to see what the evidence says and then explain the 25 problems with the study that you need to take into account. So my advice is to find sources of information. And I would like to think that my website and books are, are one of them. Find sources of information where you can find trusted people who have the same ideology as you and also the ability to understand the evidence whether you know whether whether that is books websites birth educators midwives you know people who understand and can help you to find ways to get informed i mean the reality these days is that we don't have enough time with care providers to actually find out everything we need to know and and i think that all women and families need to go further afield for information i wish it wasn't the case but it is and Part of the reason it is, is because of this focus on risk and the fact that you are, in contrast to how things were 20 or 30 years ago, you're going to be offered a different intervention or restriction or test at almost every turn. So my advice is to do what you can to get informed, surround yourself with good information and good people who are going to support you, support your agency and, and support you in you know making the decisions that, that are right for you and your family. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. 
You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. I'm really happy that my cat left me alone to do the podcast with you because last week I did an AMA with him on Instagram and I think some people actually enjoyed his answers more than mine.